Well, during these weeks, we have been looking at the prayers of uh, four prophets uh, prior to this day. And next week, actually, Susanna Hoke is going to be back with us for a Sunday, and she's going to be preaching on one more prophet, Deborah. Today, we are looking at the prophet Joel. But as we've looked at the works of Jonah and Elijah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, we've looked at a dialogue that all of these prophets have had with God. And it's a dialogue that reveals the struggle that they are in, the struggle in their calling, that calling of kind of being in between, of holding on to the people to whom they are ministering and also holding on in great tenacity to the love and the presence of of God and declaring that at a time where people are not necessarily experiencing it. And they deal with resistance in the midst of that. As they call people's attention to God, they also receive a kind of pushback from people and an invitation from those people to kind of lighten up and, and not be quite so negative. But yet they persist. And we've seen that, especially in the prayers of of Jonah and Elijah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk. And today, as we deal with Joel, we're not dealing with a prayer. I didn't find a prayer in Joel, a, a dialogue with God, but very much a person who was giving witness to the presence of God in the midst of a very a difficult time. It's not easy to invite people to wake up to the presence of God when especially they are suffering, and the people of Joel's day were suffering. They were suffering under a locust plague that had pretty much destroyed all of Israel's agricultural produce. The book, especially in that first chapter that Adrian read as a call to confession, the book describes in poetic ways just the effects of this locust plague and the totality of the destruction caused by the cutting and the swarming and the hopping and the destroying locusts. Just imagine an episode of nature and the mandibles of locusts chewing on just about everything they could possibly find to chew on. And so the call to repentance that Joel offers is really a call that's born of this incredible destruction that the people are enduring. And Joel says something that is kind of audacious, actually. He says, wake up, folks, for this is the day of the Lord. This is a way in which God is revealing himself to us. God is telling us something here. And so let this event do something that you in no way think it can do. Let this event this destruction, this difficulty, turn our attention to God. Joel, I imagine, did not go over very well in his day. People don't like to be told that they're asleep. People don't like to be told that they need to wake up. They especially don't like to be told that just maybe this locust plague is something that God might be using to help them to wake up. It didn't go over very well, I'm sure. We don't have any record of that. But what is true is whether God caused the locust plague or not, and Joel doesn't necessarily say that, but he equates it with the day of the Lord, the appearance of God. This catastrophic reality was something that could help Israel to snap out of lethargy 
and to start to pay attention. When things are taken away, we begin to mourn the loss of something that at one point we took for granted. And what Joel was essentially asking people to do is to ask a question. What does this unfortunate event tell us? What can it help us to see? And how are we going to respond? It's a call to pay attention, and it's a call that's really issued in three movements, in chapter two especially. Three movements that I would summarize in an alliterative way with three W words, with wake up, worship, and watch and wait. Joel, first of all, in this call to pay attention, calls the people of Israel to wake up. He sounds an alarm. More than once in this book, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. If you haven't noticed, things are not going okay. There's a severe mercy, however, that comes to us in the midst of this plague, is what Joel is saying. It shakes us up in our complacency. It demands our attention, and it asks us to look at life and assess who we are and where we are and where and who we were actually created to be and how there might be a divergence between those two things. The havoc that was created by this plague, Joel saw as an opportunity to wake up and to take stock of life. And in the absence of everything, to contemplate the source of everything the God who created them for relationship with himself, the God who gave them that relationship and also the invitation to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the things that he made for them. Wake up and take stock of life. What you had, what you don't have, and what God wants you to have. So wake up. Wake up, but also worship. Turn your attention to the God who made all these things, the God who made you. There's a repetition of that alarm, blow the trumpet in Zion. Turn your eyes to God is what he's saying. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, gather the aged, Gather the children, gather the nursing infants, gather the honeymooning couples, get them all together in a place and worship. Let's be about the business of waking up to the presence of God is what Joel is saying. So wake up, worship the God who made you. And once you are paying attention to this God, wait and watch and listen for and be expectant of what God is about to do in your midst. Wait and watch for the signs of God's solution. Wait and watch for the fulfillment of God's promise of restoration. Get ready to take in a very deep breath of God's renewing spirit, says Joel. And let that deep breath enlarge not only your lungs, but also your stunted imaginations 
and so make space for the expansive life into which God is calling you. Dare to dream of salvation. Dare to savor a vision of new creation. Twice in chapter two, Joel says, fear not. Fear is not the last word. Fear is not the norm, so fear not. And the words that Joel reports that are in the mouth of God are, fear not, for I will repay and restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. You shall not live in a space where shame is the norm, where you need to hide, because you will know and hold on to the truth that I am in your midst, says the Lord. And you will once again dream dreams and see visions because you will fill your lungs with the breath of God and you will take in the life-giving reality of God's presence. There's a promise of restoration in this passage. And I think it's important to talk about what restoration is and, and what restoration isn't. One of the ways that God tells his people about that restoration, he says, I will repay, or some translations say restore, the years that the locusts have eaten. And when you think about that promise, you have to recognize that it's not really a promise that things will be exactly as they were before the locusts ate them. It's not really a promise of being able to forget the destruction. In fact, there's an invitation in that first chapter that we read, an invitation to remember and to make sure that several generations after remember this plague. Don't let it fall away from the narrative of who you are as a people. It's not a promise that things will be as they were. It's not a promise of being able to forget the destruction. We won't get back to exactly the way it was before the locusts ever ate anything. What we will know, rather, is that the destruction caused by these locusts will not be the last word. What we will know in the wake of this destruction is that they did not have the last word, that the, the cutting and the swarming and the hopping and the destroying locusts, though they ate everything in sight, did not have the last word. Restoration, repayment, reparations do not erase the scar of the destruction they simply confirm the truth that the destruction is not the last word and that there is a reason, therefore, to look forward and hope. They mean that old men can dream dreams and young men can see visions. They're a taste of an open and life-filled future. This past week, I was watching the news and saw a report from Gaza. It was a report about the destruction there, obviously, and what's going on in this latest encounter between Israel and the Palestinians. 
what's being produced by the strife there. And in this particular report, there was one brief clip of a father carrying the lifeless body of what appeared to be his three or four year old son and wailing and weeping as he had just dug this lifeless body of his son out from under the rubble of what was their home. There was a deep grief, although it was almost subliminal in the duration of, of the report itself, but there was this deep, deep grief and utter devastation and desolation due to a world lost, a hope destroyed, something that cannot be restored, the life of his son. There is no restoration or repayment that could ever erase the scar of that event. But if that father's ability to imagine an open future is ever re-engaged, if the grief is far enough behind to where he can look forward to what might be and once again have a dream or a vision, it won't be because the scar of this loss has been erased or because someone else's son on the other side has been killed in retribution. That won't mend anything. It will come in the realization that God made us for something more than endless cycles of aggression and retribution. It will come when we behold and begin to live into the dreams that God made us for relationship with himself and, and one another, and that God made us to love and to be loved. It occurs to me that it is no easy thing for old men to dream dreams. No easy thing for old men and old women to dream dreams. Let's be inclusive here. But there's nothing better, although it's, we know it's not easy to dream those dreams, there's nothing better than hanging out with an old man or an old woman who does dream dreams. The gentleness of one who knows that life holds promise, even though the world that he or she built is passing away, that gentleness is a beautiful sight to behold. And it's the surest sign in the life of that old man or that old woman that their lungs are filled with the breath of God. Would you pray with me, please? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 
so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.